0: The 2002 French Grand Prix will always be remembered as the day Michael Schumacher made history, winning his fifth world title ridiculously early in the season to equal Juan Manuel Fangio's record number of championships. But it could so easily have been a race remembered instead for Kimi Raikkonen's maiden F1 victory, were it not for oil on the track in the closing stages. And even after the chequered flag, Schumacher's win was subject to controversy. Welcome to another episode of Bring Back V10s, and joining me, Glenn Freeman, this week to look back on the many storylines from this sunny weekend in France are two men who were there at Manicourt, Gary Anderson, who was busy running things in the Jordan garage, and Mark Hughes. Gary, welcome to your first appearance of Series 4. So when you think back to the 2002 French Grand Prix weekend, What's the first thing that comes to mind? And I assume it's Jordan related.
1: Um, yeah, it is really. I mean, it, it was all about points. We've gone into the 11th um, race of the season and, and basically we'd had a very bad start with reliability problems. We had had three three point scores. But, you know, when you think back in those years, it was, you got points to sixth. So you could have a really good weekend finish seventh all season long and still not have a point on the board. So our full focus was to try and get the best out of the car. You know, uh, At best, we had a midfield car, so we had to get the best out of it. I mean, getting getting us into the top 10 was probably as good as Michael Schumacher getting on pool as such because that's where we really were. So we just needed to get to the checkered flag and try to add a few more points onto the onto the system there. But um, it all went a bit wrong, obviously, in the race, which we'll come to later. But, you know, it's one of those sort of situations where you when you go to a Grand Prix, you have to be focused on yourself. You can't really look at all the other stuff that's going on um, until after the event.
0: Yeah, it was an eventful weekend for Jordan, as we'll we'll come to shortly. Now, Mark, you were there covering the race as you always were in this era. So, what stands out for you about that weekend?
2: Um, my main memory of it, um, I, th- I think we might have touched on this before when we talked about Williams, um, was post race uh, waiting to have a chat with Patrick Head, who who wasn't in the mood to have a chat, and um, it was it was very funny uh, because they'd blitzed pole position yet again and finished nowhere yet again and it was becoming a bit of a pattern and um you know patrick's can be fantastic company but um he, he, he wasn't up for company and uh he was dressed in his motorbike leathers were waiting to, to leave because he used to come down to magna Corp on his bmw motorbike and he was trying to leave the williams motorhome um, but I was camped outside there along with another couple of journalists wait, waiting to, you know, just ask questions about what is it? What's going wrong? Where, any clues to, you know, help just analyze, you know, what was going on, the dynamics of the race. And uh, he just kept popping his head out and seeing us and going back inside and eventually just decided to brave it and just walked straight up the paddock with us walking alongside, giving one, and he was just giving one word answers, yes, no we we tried not to understand no nope. um yeah and eventually the uh, the maneuvering toyota transporter sort of blocked him he blocked his exit so he he took to the bushes and he just went straight through the bushes and it was uh, I I lost I lost it at that point it was it was so funny but um yeah that as we'll explore in this episode this was a bit of a pattern with the williams that that year and um that was yeah that's that's my the standout memory for me of that weekend did you follow him through the bushes? <laughs> no, I couldn't. It's too funny.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, whenever you look at it, they were fourth and fifth. I mean, we'd have given the right arm for that. So uh, not too bad a weekend for them. But, you know, as you say, your expectations are all that you can uh, aim to achieve.
0: Yeah, it's all relative in Formula One, isn't it? And uh, before we move on with the weekend, remember to get your questions in for our series finale episodes using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or you can email bringbackv10s at the-race.com. And if you want to get early access to our new episodes and listen to them ad-free, check out the Race Members Club, where you can get all sorts of other benefits and perks as well, including a monthly Ask Gary Anderson podcast that's exclusive to our members. Our members get their own exclusive opportunity to put questions forward at the end of this series as well, and there'll be some other special Bring Back V10s bonuses for you Down the road. Thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star podcast review recently. Your support does mean a lot to us, and we haven't done any shout-outs yet in this series. So here's a quick thank you to Andy Smith, two seven eight one Indiana O, Candid Gamer, Pete F one eighty six, and T Conway ninety five. But let's get on with France two thousand and two, and we're going to start with a saga that was quickly heading towards disaster in the summer of that year. The fate of arrows. The team almost missed the British Grand Prix until boss Tom Walkinshaw paid an outstanding debt to Cosworth of more than $4.5 million out of his own pocket. Arrows were granted an extension at Silverstone to have their cars scrutinised a day late on the Friday, but that grace from the FIA was not expected to be repeated in France. Walkinshaw was trying to sell the team to Red Bull at this stage, which had already placed Enrique Bernoldi at the team since 2001, when Sauber went for Kimi Räikkönen instead, as we've discussed in our previous series. But that sale was being blocked by Morgan Grenfell, which owned 70% of the team and had an injunction in place preventing any additional funding being raised through the sale of equity. Arrows delayed sending its trucks to France, with Walkinshaw telling the Daily Mail at the start of the week, we have to find a solution before setting off. You don't want to subject your staff to this nonsense. People don't realize what the F1 paddock can be like. When people smell blood, it can turn into a feeding frenzy. In the end, Walkinshaw sent the trucks on the Tuesday night, even though negotiations with the existing shareholders were still ongoing. He said, we will do all in our power to compete at the weekend. We have new investors waiting to step in and secure our future. Negotiations are detailed and complex, but we don't intend to give up. We need more time. We want to do a deal that will satisfy everyone concerned. Now, Gary, before we get into what happened to Arrows once they got to France, how aware were you guys in a team like Jordan of what was going on with Arrows? And did what did Eddie Jordan make of it? Because as we've discussed in the past, Eddie had obviously been close to the brink previously, so I imagine he could sympathise somewhat with Tom.
1: Yeah, well, whenever I started back at the Jordan in 2002... Um, it was just the end of 2001, obviously. It was about uh, end of November, I think it was, and I got called into the Eddie's office, um, and the guy from Deutsche Post was there as well. I sort of got this message that basically the team was in, in financial trouble, um, and we needed to reduce the staff levels and tighten budgets and do all sorts of stuff. And this was sort of more or less my first day back, and I thought, oh, here we go. I've got no job anymore. Um, but they asked me to sort of draft up a list being being just just coming into the company again to draft up a list of the people I thought we could uh, you know exist without to be honest uh, some of them were top end people some of them were just normal guys in the workshop but all of them were, were good people and whenever you have to do that you know you, you have to do it so for me Freddie we had been through that situation and tightened our budgets a lot and uh, obviously the Arrow situation was growing we were hearing about it races you know a few races before the French Grand Prix but Eddie was um, quite a good mate of Wilton Wilkinshaw's, um, I suppose they were sort of two con men together a bit, uh, you could say, but, you know, they, they did they did talk to each other about what was going on and they did understand a little bit But, you know, Cosworth were in a, a difficult situation because they'd been bitten through the years, they'd been bitten more times than enough, um, not getting paid, many, many promises, but still not getting paid. So they were tightening down pretty dramatically on people not paying their bills, not paying agreeing to their contracts. Um, so yeah, there was rumors around, but we didn't really know how how deeply involved it was. Um, my daughter Charlotte was actually working with the, um, the Arrows, the Orange group that were sponsoring them. Um, and she was looking after, uh, you know, the people in the in the paddock and whatever. So it was always, it was a bit difficult for her as well, because she had an inkling they weren't going to do very much, but she still had about 50 people coming to, uh, to see them race. So it was a A fairly difficult sort of situation for her. So, yeah, rumours were around, but we didn't really know the depth of the detail of it uh, right until the uh, the last minutes of qualifying, to be honest, I suppose you might call it.
0: Yeah, things really accelerated over the next few days. Arrows confirmed on the Wednesday before the race that it had a new payment plan with Cosworth, whereby the money had to arrive on the Wednesday before the race. Otherwise, the team wouldn't get its engines. And that was all under control. And on Thursday, the cars passed scrutineering on time. However, Arrows didn't run in Friday practice, saying that it couldn't run the cars until the situation between Morgan Grenfell and Red Bull was sorted out. Walkinshaw spoke to the media on Friday afternoon, saying, We were advised to do very little. The cars will definitely go out tomorrow. In the end, I think it will be OK, but it's a long and drawn-out process, which has unfortunately been done in the public gaze. Bernaldi and Heinz-Hald appeared in the final 10 minutes of final practice on Saturday, to do an installation lap each and then in qualifying they slowed dramatically on the only laps they completed to make sure they were outside the 107 limit and therefore failed to qualify however by taking part in the session they'd officially met any contractual agreements with f1 to participate in the weekend bernaldi complained that this is not the formula one i had dreamed of but Walkinshaw said our priority has to be to get this team back on its feet and in a position where we can build a positive future. There are a whole load of negotiations going on in London, and we have to make sure we don't do anything that could derail that process because we've got to make sure that we get to a successful conclusion. Arrows' actions were met with sympathy by McLaren's Ron Dennis, who said what they achieved during the event was the avoidance of a penalty for missing an event, which can therefore help in selling the team. The important thing is that the team survives, and if that is the case, I think we can come to terms with this downside. So, Mark, what did you make of Arrow's plight as it developed over this weekend? Because it's not often we see a team deliberately failing to qualify. It was just
2: very sad, and it was um, when it was becoming um, obvious that this this was the team in, a, in its death throes, unless they could pull a rabbit out of the hat. Nobody nobody wants to see see a team go out of existence, and this was a a good little team. It had been choked of resource for a few years but it was it, it operated at a very respectable level and tom walk showed the taking it over in 95 96 from jackie oliver with ambitious plans to boost it from this it had been like a ticking over respectable respectable mid-grid team to something more ambitious but it, tom's um, business empire was uh was was in the throes of um coming crashing down really not not and and, and arrows was a Really, a, a casualty of that. Um, and it was this was the team that was the, the last remnants of the, the Shadow team from 1973 because Arrows was a sort of a um, formed by a group of mutinies, mutinies from Shadow in, in 1978. So it had history, it had been around a long time. There were a lot of very good people there. And it was a very, very capable team and
0: just being squeezed out of existence. So it was, yeah, it was very sad. And given how capable that team was, if we look at the Red Bull side of things, how would Red Bull's sort of course of history in F1 and eventual team ownership, how might that have looked if they'd bought Arrows a couple of years before they bought Jaguar?
2: Yeah, actually, I think Red Bull's history would have been much the same. I don't think um, <laughs> it would have been that, that different. Red Bull actually bought Arrows' mega wind tunnel as a result of Arrows going out of business. And they still have it to this day. That's that's the tunnel they operate out from from this day. And um, I think, yeah, I, I mean, poor old Gary was having to operate with a wind tunnel back in the States, uh, I think. Um, and so they, this the, the, the dissolution of arrows uh, allowed that to be put right. And, um, yeah, I think the foundation for Red Bull's success could have just as easily been arrows as Jaguar.
0: Now, as we know michael schumacher arrived in france on the brink of winning his fifth world championship at the 11th race in a 17 race season and in july which was unheard of on the subject of why ferrari was so dominant in 2002 having won eight of the first 10 races ross braun said the results you get are a reflection of both the job you are doing and the job your rivals are doing we have been very lucky but you do make your own luck to some degree But our opposition have not been as strong as they have been in recent years. Schumacher and team boss John Todd put a lot of that success down to Ferrari's close relationship with Bridgestone. And Schumacher said, we probably have worked simply better, especially in the area of tyres. With Bridgestone, we have a partner who can tailor make the tyres for us. That is definitely an advantage. And in the years since, there's been little argument from Ferrari's rivals about Braun's theory. Adrian Newey has called the 2002 McLaren a clumsy design. And Patrick Head has said that Williams should have won the championship in 2002, but its engines weren't reliable enough and the car wasn't good enough. Just a couple of key factors that were missing then for Williams. But Mark, what was your assessment at the time? Was Bridgestone already the major factor here for Ferrari's dominance? Or was this a key example of McLaren and Williams slipping up?
2: um those two teams did underdeliver but i think bridgestone's relationship with ferrari which um, bridgestone ferrari was the only um fully major team that was running with bridgestone's while the others were um uh, michelin sort of took up the 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 bulk of the the load um bridgestone's relationship with ferrari and the money that was being spent doing tailor made tires for ferrari pretty much you know d- tailor-made to what Michael Schumacher decided he wanted based on his testing. While all the rivals were on his standard Michelins, which, which, which were, be, were being developed through the season, but it, they had to, it was like, you know, one size fit all. I think that was a big advantage. And, and rather, it wasn't so much the tyre concept itself, which is actually a more old-fashioned concept of tyre than the Michelin, but Michelin was just in its second year back after 20 years away and was still struggling a little for consistency. Um but uh, yeah, McLaren and Williams both um under delivered on their designs that year. The the Ferrari was a significant step ahead of them. It, they were like previous generation cars compared to the F two thousand and two, which was a, a lovely, responsive, aggressive little car, perfectly in tune with with Schumacher and the, the way he liked to drive.
1: Yep. No, there's just a couple of things on the tires there. You gotta remember, I think that the knowledge of of Williams and of uh uh, McLaren with the tire profiles from the Bridgestone days was very different to the to the Michelin, and I think I think that was just a little bit early in in, in time for the teams to really hundred percent realize how big an effect that was and having was having on the cars as well. So, you know, it was a major change. Never mind the tire itself and how the tire worked, but actually how it affected the cars.
0: And obviously, Gary Jordan were one of the midfield teams still on Bridgestones in two thousand and two, along with Sauber and BAR. Were you getting any benefit out of the work that was going on between Bridgestone and Ferrari? Um,
1: we were getting quite a lot of frustration out of the work that was going on between Bridgestone and Ferrari. We we actually did quite a lot of testing. Um, you know, whenever you say now that Michael's tires were tailor made for him and what he wanted, uh, Fizzy actually did quite a lot of testing with the, the tires that Ferrari would get because um, Bridgestone weren't sure. You know, they weren't sure about going in this direction, so they would try to confirm it with another team. And, you know, Fizzy, for all his good and all his bad, he, he had a really good feeling for, for tires and for the car. And um, so they did quite a lot of testing with us. Unfortunately, we never got to use those tires in, in competition because it wasn't so much the, the tire, um, I don't know, construction that you call it, it was the materials that were being used in the tire that were quite different. They had the characteristics of the materials in the, in the sidewalls of the tires and the, the corner of the tire where it joins to the tread. That was quite different than what we would get, Though, although we would get a copy of that tire, it was a different tire. And you are talking, in any of the back-to-backs we've done, you are talking, you know, good tenths of a second and maybe even up to, you know, three, four or five tenths of a second on a, on, a t- on a track where the tires were quite important. So we would get frustrated a little bit about that and we tried very hard to corner them in to, to bring in enough tires for us. But they just, you know, they had that decision that Ferrari got these tires. Everybody else got the others, and that was the way it was going to be. And they couldn't sort of go off track with a second team and allow us to use a a few tires because everybody else would have to get them as well. And so they would just become very messy. And we did understand that, but it's it's very frustrating whenever you know. It's very frustrating for a driver whenever you know you can bolt on this other set of black bits, and they will just go quicker. But um, no, we just did the best we could with the tires we were given.
0: Now, in the summer of 2002, there was yet another round of speculation over if the Volkswagen group would consider F1, which is a story that never goes away even today. But the company's boss at the time, Bernd Pischitzreider, said there was no interest and he made an impressively accurate prediction. He told Autocar, the manufacturers now involved in F1 each spend about 250 million euros a year. This pays off only when you are winning. The image loss for sustained failure is serious. I think one or two now involved will be gone within five years. That wasn't a bad prediction. Ford left at the end of 2004, Honda at the end of 2008, and then Toyota and BMW a year later. But, Mark, in 2002, Toyota had just joined the grid, and Renault was back as the owner of a works team, having taken over and rebranded Benetton. So, in many ways, this was the beginning of the peak. Of F1's manufacturer era. So, was there any feeling within F1 at that stage that the manufacturer era wouldn't be sustainable? Oh, it, it was it was boom time. It was let the good times roll.
2: No, no one wanted to be the party pooper saying it wasn't sustainable. It was, a, it was a time of massive expansion for the teams, fueled by all this automotive money. Um, I'd occasionally write a piece asking about what happens the day that when, when the taps get turned off, but it, it got to say, it was a bit off message um i think the denial i'd say would be the 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 overriding
0: theme too many people making too much money to worry about when it might stop let's talk driver market next this was the home race for renault of course and on the saturday the team announced its 2003 driver lineup with test driver fernando alonso replacing jenson button alongside Jarno trulli looking at the alonso side of the equation first Renault Sport president Patrick Fora said, we feel Fernando has all the right qualities in terms of speed and concentration. It is important to have him racing in 2003 to get experience before a serious attack on the championship in 2004. Alonso said, I have worked hard as a test driver this year to convince the team that I deserve an opportunity to race. Next year will really be like the start of my career. Renault is obviously very different from Minardi, where he raced in 2001, as we discussed earlier in this series. It will be my first experience of racing for a big team, and we have a really strong potential for the future. So Mark, as I said, we talked about Alonso's route into that Renault test drive earlier in the series when he left Minardi and took a year off of racing for 2002. Was there always an inevitability that he would step up into the race drive as soon as 2003?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We'd been... been hearing about how he was comparing in the tests to Trulli and, and Button, and he was creating something of a, a sensation within the team. I think he took it as an, his absolute mission that year to ensure he always went quicker than both the, the race drivers. Um, and it was absolutely no surprise. He, so, yeah, it left because of the the way that the contracts were. Um, I think Jarno still had another year to run. They had to create this space to put Alonso in, otherwise, you know, they were wasting all that preparation time from, and So it left Button a little bit out on a limb as the odd one out. So, yeah, he, there was no place for Jensen there in 2003. And, uh, yeah, this this was announced that weekend in Magna Cura.
1: And I, think, I think also the fact that the, the commitment that Alonso put in for, with Renault was just second to none, whereas Button was a bit, you know, in younger days, was a, a little bit more of uh, having a bit of fun, I suppose you might call it, in Formula 1. He had reached that, that level. And his 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 focus and commitment wasn't 100%, whereas Alonso just you know, doubled anybody's concentration level. And you know he was just another Michael Schumacher in a way. He just knew what he needed to be to be a successful Formula One driver, and very few drivers actually achieve knowing that, to be honest.
0: The Button side of all this is a bit more interesting because Button said he'd been told the day after the British Grand Prix that he was losing his drive. And he told the media in France he was slightly shocked because the season had been going so well. Button wrote in his book that the reason for his shock was that he didn't realise Trulli and Alonso both already had contracts for 2003. So of Renault's three drivers, it was only his contract that was expiring after 2002. There was a reasonable amount of sympathy expressed from Renault. Uh, Flavio Briatore said, this season we have been lucky to have three of the best current F1 drivers in the team. Unfortunately, we cannot keep them all, and a decision had to be taken. I'm sorry to see Jensen go, as he has done a superb job for us this season. Button said it hurt because he felt he'd responded well to a kick up the backside from Flavio over the winter, and he'd worked hard with the team to understand more about what makes a car and driver fast in F1. Jensen said in his book, No doubt about it, I was going to leave Renault a better driver in pretty much every respect, but I didn't think I should be leaving leaving at all. They had made clear their intention to challenge for the title and I wanted to be around for that. On the plus side, I never really fitted in at Benetton then Renault. I always felt like someone visiting rather than a permanent fixture. At least I wouldn't have to put up with Flavio anymore. What was he playing at? Putting me in a dark place, then helping me clamber out, only to shove me back in again. Now, Gary, you mentioned that Jensen's reputation... Kind of went through a bit of a roller coaster in his first couple of years. There were questions about his application. He had that great first year with Williams, then a dreadful 2001 with Benetton. In 2002, when his performances picked up again, had that started to repair his reputation among the, the teams in the pit lane? Um, I,
1: to a certain extent, yes, but I think that <clears throat> you're only as good as your competition. And obviously, you know, whenever we talk about teams beating other teams, you're only beating the people you're competing against. And again, for, for Jensen, it was it was a bit tough because he he did get put against uh, Fernando Alonso. So it was it was judged against that. I mean, he scored more points than truly up to that point in time of the season. You know, everything was sort of reasonably positive for him. But I still think that uh, he didn't show that out-and-out hunger and commitment that Formula One requires from somebody that might just win a world championship. It's, it's a bit bigger than that. And, you know, you have to be very cutthroat in it. And I don't think that anybody outside of the of the teams that he worked with could see that. And obviously, if you can't see it, then he, you just don't sort of go there. But I think what he said in his book was true, that, you know, that the time of Flavio probably helped him. He just didn't have enough time to get it to mature to the level that would give him that cutthroat um, attitude to. And I think he even saw that even, even through the rest of his career as well. You know, obviously, he, he won the World Championship with Braun, but... Going through the rest of his career, it was always it never really had that out and out. I've got to I've got to do this. He didn't see that total commitment and hunger and the guy that you see in Michael Schumacher or now Lewis Hamilton, you know um, Max Verstappen, Fernando Alonso at that point in time. So he never really showed that to me.
0: The button's availability sparked plenty of interest from other teams. Although by the time of Renault's announcement, his future was in fact already set. He turned down offers from Toyota, Jaguar and Sauber, although he had been spotted at the Sauber factory and said he was only visiting to pick up some Swiss chocolate. But he decided to go for BAR, and in his book he called the approach from team boss David Richards a stroke of good fortune. Button said at the time he was flattered by the enormous attention he'd received, but he felt that Richards' long-term plan for the team, plus the relationship with Honda, meant BAR offered him the best chance to become world champion. He said at the time, this is not a gamble. It's a team that is definitely going to improve throughout the next few years. I have no doubt that we can look forward to some very exciting times ahead. Once the deal was announced, Richard said, "Jensen has an extraordinary talent, which now needs to be nurtured in the right environment for it to flourish. We have a long term plan, which is designed to deliver success to BAR. This won't happen overnight and we have realistic expectations for the next two seasons. Picking up on that comment about Button needing the right environment, Jensen said in his book that walking into BAR was like taking a breath of fresh air, a welcoming, friendly, good atmosphere. So, Mark, how important was this move to BAR and the role of David Richards in Button's development that we saw over the next couple of years?
2: It was a it was a port in the storm. It, it kept Jensen in play. Um, but it was clearly going to be a long slog. But he, Jensen could quite easily have just slipped out of F1 at that stage. He, if he'd gone to a, if he'd gone to Saber and Sauber had a difficult season, he could have, you know, spent a couple of years just making up the numbers and then disappeared. So, in hindsight, that was it was uh, it was the right move for him. Um, and the, the, but the team itself wasn't <clears throat> as together as, as Renault was at that time. Renault had all the building blocks in place. BAR really didn't. They had the, begun to put together some foundations, notably with Jeff Willis, who later became one of the architects of the, the hybrid Mercedes blockbuster success, but it would be a, a couple of years before they had something properly good enough, and even even then it didn't sustain. But, of course, Seven years on, it would lead to his world title. But yeah, it was critical make or break
0: time and Dave Richards kind of rescued Button at that point. And talking of BAR, they were having a horrible season in 2002. And at a previous race at Silverstone, Jacques Villeneuve and Olivier Panis had got the team's first points of the year with fourth and fifth place, which immediately jumped them up from 11th to seventh in the Constructors' standings. Villeneuve said that result was like waking up and putting some cold water on your face and he admitted it felt like BAR wasn't going to score all season. Part of the turnaround in fortunes was thought to be down to Honda finally being able to run its latest spec of engine in the race. Honda Racing Development's race and test team manager, Shuhai Nakamoto, said Honda knew it still had a lot of work to be done, and he added there would be step-by-step development at each Grand Prix throughout the second half of the season. Gary Jordan had Honda power as well in 2002, How good were those engines by this stage of the year?
1: Um, Well, we started the season and we had a a few problems, to be honest with it, Um, mainly in the oil system. Um, There was basically a system that they had more or less copied from Cosworth, but they didn't copy it correctly. And you would get very random oil temperature. Um, You leave the pits once and go out and the oil temperature would be fine. You leave it the next time go out and the oil temperature would be 20 degrees hotter. So it was just the way the oil system was working. And during the initial tests of the season, we... We worked very hard with Honda, even to the extent of myself and a, a young Japanese gentleman, one very late night, taking this pump off the, uh, the engine, um, discovering the problem and putting a, a spring out of a biro into this little valve to make sure it's shut in the same direction each time. It was a valve and it was sitting horizontally. So basically, it just depended on how you started the engine up as to which way it would whether it would be open or shut. So this spring, very light spring, made sure it was shut in the right direction. And the next day, the the oil temperature was consistent. So we were, you know, lots and lots of things to learn, and Honda Honda to learn as well. And we were a little bit separated from the BAR um, group, I suppose you might call it. You know, they they definitely were getting um, the priority, I suppose you might call it, in the engine front. But it was okay; it wasn't bad at all. Um, step by step, they were making making good ground, and. Um, that's all you can ask, to be honest, at the end of the day is moving forward. We were, at that point in time, whenever they got two good results at uh, at Silverstone, we were uh, sixth in the championship and they suddenly become seventh. So they become a threat. We had six points and they had five. They suddenly become a threat to us. And as I said earlier, you only got points to sixth. So you had to be in that top six to score anything. And that, that was pretty tough. So reliability was a hugely important thing to make sure you got to the checkered flag and got the best out of the season you could.
0: And Mark, looking specifically at BAR, given the resources that team had, how badly were they underperforming in 2002 to get past the mid-season point, having not scored before they got to Silverstone?
2: Yeah, quite badly, given that they were supported by Honda, Honda's works team, effectively. Um, the right pieces weren't yet in place there. The whole thing had been set up as a sort of vanity project by Craig Pollock, based on a dream that he'd sold Jack Villeneuve, that you could instantly just use tobacco money to buy your way into being a top team from a standing start and contract out the design to Raynard or whatever. F1 was already too complex for that to have ever worked so that that realization had dawned and and now the team was trying to get itself properly established haven't had the reality check and it was it's having to grow organically but still had a lot of the layers of the original misguided project within the organization and it it took years to get right because there were good people in there, it would occasionally come good. And the 2004 car in particular was very good. But the management never seemed to understand why anything had gone well or badly. It was a it was a bigger project than than Dave Richards was in place to take on, really. It couldn't be done as a, a side project, a pro drive. It, it would only start coming right when Honda brought Ross Braun in six, six years or so after the period we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, we just mentioned Reynard, there. I was uh, doing Indy cars in 2001 with Radar Latin America. And, uh, I was back in England for some reason. And, um, Adrian asked me to go into the, into the BAR meeting room and have a chat with some of the, the designers and engineers and whatever. And we had a, you know, a good chat about it, but the biggest thing, to be honest, was everybody was blaming everybody else between the chassis and the, and the engine relationship. Nobody was working in the same direction. And, uh, again, it was just, nobody was taking responsibility, I suppose. So it was, it was early days in, in sort of setting up the company, I think, and, and making sure you had a structure that basically could pinpoint your problems because with any of any racing car, at any point in time, you've got to recognize your problem, identify it, and then fix it. But they were just blindly going through developing the car. Um, no reason for it, you know, just just find more downforce or whatever. There was no just identifying the problem and getting on with it. In that meeting we sat down there, you could easily see that it was going to be a big struggle for quite a few years because nobody wanted to work with anybody else.
0: Yeah, and we got some interesting insight from David Richards at the start of our previous series when, when he told us some of the things he had to do to turn that team around. And looking more specifically at the disastrous start BAR had in 1999, let's just say we're coming back to that storyline later in the series. But elsewhere in the driver market, McLaren test driver Alex Wirtz was another man in demand. Wirtz said on his website that he was negotiating with three teams and he told the Austrian press that two of those teams were promising him a race drive while McLaren was offering a three-year contract and more money to stay on as test driver. In 2016, verts revisited this story on the McLaren website. He said, for 2003, I had the chance to race for Jaguar. It was a three-year contract guaranteed by Detroit and I would have done it. The Jaguar execs went a long way to try and get me out of my McLaren contract. But in the end, McLaren decided not to let me go. That was pretty tough, especially after what happened to me with Kimi. And that's referring to a story we told in our Raikkonen 2001 episode, where Verts was briefly told he would be racing for McLaren in 2002, only for the team to go quiet on him and then sign Raikkonen instead. Mark, was it a shame that Wurz spent so many years out of racing? Or did McLaren do him a favor? by not letting him leave for Jaguar, which I imagine Gary might want to come in on afterwards as well.
2: It's one of those questions we can't really know the answer to, isn't it? They they got Mark Webber instead, who dragged the, the 2003 Jag into grid places. It it had no right being, but then fade in the race. And they didn't fix the fundamental problems there during that time. And, and verts would have faced exactly the same limitations as Webber. But Weber used the credibility he'd gained at Jaguar to parlay that into a Williams drive, where his teammate ironically would be Alex Wirtz um, and there was no question of which was the quicker driver there. so I, who knows how it might have played out It might have played out with a different dynamic, but um yeah i, I don't I don't think the um, the history pages were changed that radically, let's say.
1: No, I agree. I mean you know the the big problem with Jaguar really was trying to get the um, <clears throat> the management focused in the direction. That you had to go, and it wasn't. You couldn't get instant results. I think they felt that you know they 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 came in whenever I was there. They came in buying Stuart Grand Prix, who had won one Grand Prix that year, but had a had a pretty good season in in 1999, uh, and they expected us to be you know podium contenders in 2000. So the 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 building blocks weren't being put in place. It was just this hoping for this miracle to happen. And if the miracle didn't happen, then they they didn't understand because as far as they were concerned, it was just about going through the motions and doing the job as opposed to building for the future. Um, getting decisions out of four was very difficult. And I think that carried through for quite a few years. I mean, Red Bull showed that you could take this team over, restructure it as such, bring in the right people, and you have a, a championship contender immediately or a risk-winning contender immediately, and then you build for championships. But it um, I don't think of the changes, as, as Mark says, the history books as to what would happen because It wasn't an individual that that made it work. It was a whole change of philosophy, I suppose you might call it.
0: Okay, we've reached what I think we can call the Jordan section of this episode. So Mark can grab a cup of tea and check his emails while Gary takes us inside the yellow garages. By this point, there were growing rumours that Jordan would have Cosworth power for 2003, with some reports claiming Eddie Jordan had signed that deal during the weekend in France. Eddie was asked about this on the F1 Digital channel, and he went absolutely spare. He said, please make your mind up. Is it Cosworth? Is it Honda? Is it Toyota? Is it Mercedes or BMW? This is becoming ridiculous. Every time we bring our head above the parapet, it seems to be talking about engines. I'll say in my clearest possible English, I have a three-year contract of which I'm in the second year with Honda. Jordan is in a position where it does not break contracts. I can't make it any clearer than that. If you are concerned about the issue, then I would suggest that you put it on record with Honda, because my view is that we will be using Honda engines next year. This is a case where it is almost too late if there was a change of engines. I would have thought that that would have given you some insurance that perhaps the Honda relationship is ongoing and will and we'll provide engines for the next year. If we were to go to somebody to find an engine for next year, there would be some damaging timeframes involved. But Gary, as it turned out, Jordan did lose Honda for 2003 and did end up with Cosworth power and a decent severance package from Japan. Was Eddie's real frustration here that unfortunately the rumours he he was being asked about were actually true? Um,
1: uh, Yeah, I think so. To be honest, Um, one of the things that happened during 2002, and I can't remember, I think it was the British Grand Prix time, um, was that Honda wanted to buy End to Jordan Grand Prix. Um, There's always been these bits and pieces of rumours about it, but it never really happened. And so it it, um, it was one of those sort of situations where it it had to come to a high sometime at some point in time. We we did start to look at the Cosworth engine, and again, as I say, the dates of when it really happened, but it was the mid-season. It was around that point in time um, that we had to start looking at it. And the relationship with with Honda was. Was uh, struggling a little bit because obviously the BAR situation was building up. So we had a we had a difficult situation there as to whether Honda would get involved more with BAR or whether they would actually get involved more with Jordan. Um, and Eddie didn't want Honda to take over Jordan. Really, he didn't see it that he could walk away from the team, which is what was would have been asked of him. Um, so it was you know honda got behind behind bar and obviously that left us behind that left us was, was nowhere to go really as such we could have been a customer engine for another year as such but um we wanted to try and build someone different from that so yeah eddie was probably being asked the questions that he knew the answer to but didn't want to know the answer to um and, the, and sort of stating that he had a three-year contract meant that somebody might have to buy that contract out he didn't want to have to do that so it was putting the pressure on somebody else to put their hand in their pocket and and relieve them with some cash so that Eddie can have it to uh, take them forward somewhere else.
0: Yeah, I think we've discussed that in our Austria 2002 episode, that um, the, the the severance package was good as long as it went towards another engine. But Eddie's mood wouldn't have got any better on Saturday morning when Giancarlo Fisichella had a massive crash coming out of the long, fast Estoril right-hander early in the lap. His front wing failed, getting stuck under the car and sending Fisichella skating wide into a tyre barrier at high speed. F1 doctor Sid Watkins said Fissy Keller couldn't race. And Fissy said afterwards, I don't remember what happened. I feel all right. I just have a headache and neck pain. The doctor told me it's not possible to race because of the very big deceleration I experienced around 34 G. Gary, before we come on to the incredible story of the driver Jordan tried to get to replace Fissy Keller, Tell us a bit more about this crash and how badly damaged was the car?
1: Yeah, obviously in a, <clears throat> a 34G crash, there's a, there's a fair amount of damage. Um, structurally, the car was okay. Um, we think the front wing probably got damaged over a, a curb uh, earlier on in the lap or earlier on in, in that session. Um, it's always difficult to know whenever you get a bag of bits back. It's uh, almost impossible to know, but you you know, you know, look at all the bits and you see what happened. We've done plenty of miles on, with that front wing. Um, and we didn't, you know, expect any problems, I suppose there may have been. Um, but the car itself, you know, suspension damage and whatever. So it, it uh, definitely damaged it quite a lot. So it would, you know, needed a complete rebuild to be honest. Fizzy, as I say, had a bit of a headache and a sore neck, which I'm not surprised with. Um, so it's, it's one of those sort of situations where, you know, uh, Sid Watkins is very good at making those judgments as to whether the driver should continue or not. And it was the right choice not to continue.
2: Yeah, I was standing trackside in the practice session at the very fast chicane around the back, I think it's called the Nürburgring chicane, and I'd watched Fissi understeer over that very high curb, and the car took off and landed with a hell of a crash, and he just kept going, and I was surprised to see him come come past again the next lap, and then the lap after that, he, he crashed. And so I'd figured that he'd probably damaged the car in some way in the incident that I'd seen. And I remember when I got back to the paddock going to find Gary and just letting Gary know. And I think you'd already picked it up by then that he'd had some sort of uh, incident like the lap before. But I, I saw that happen. he just he just the, the car must have been about three, three feet in the air and came down very heavily, um, sort of front front end first.
1: The thing the thing you have to remember now and actually is it's quite important because it relates to flexi wings. Uh, which is, you know, F1 world as as it is now is going through it. At that point in time, um, and especially for us as a team, we, you know, we would build stuff rigidly um, because that's all we knew how to do. And if you, you know, if you do that, then any shock load that goes into it going over a curb can damage the structure. Nowadays, if you look at the front wings going over curbs, yeah, they still damage them um, quite a few times in current cars, but the wing moves around quite a lot. So it doesn't actually sort of destroy the structure of the of the front wing as as quickly. It destroys components on the front wing quite quickly, but not the structure of the front wing. So flexible wings to a certain level is not the wrong thing to have, um, because it does allow those those um, you know those those big bangs across curbs to be absorbed into the structure and it can move a little bit. So it's never wrong. It's never right. That's the problem. So you just have to do the best you can and. At that point in time, we built the wings, as I say, as structurally stiff as possible.
0: Now, let's move on to Jordan's almost stand-in driver. Uh, searching for an easy replacement and a driver who was on-site and race sharp, the team applied to get sidelined Arrows driver Heinz-Held Frentzen into the car. Nothing wrong with that, you might think, but this was one year on, almost to the day, uh, from Jordan sacking Frentzen mid-season in 2001, just before his home race in Germany. The FAA was willing to allow Frentzen to race under the circumstances of force majeure, with its statement adding, providing there are no contractual difficulties. Unfortunately, there were. Frentzen said contractual obstacles could not be overcome, and Jordan released a statement saying potential legal technicalities not involving Jordan meant that Heinz Harald was unable to accept the offer. He wants to do it and Jordan wants to do it, but his management has stepped in. Uh, Gary, Fredson's dispute with Jordan over his 2001 sacking still wasn't settled until December 2002. So how on earth did he almost end up racing for the team in July 2002?
1: Well, whenever you say there that, um, that Jordan wanted to do it, I think you have to say Eddie Jordan wanted to do it with Fredson. <laughs> let's, let's separate the two because nobody else <laughs> thought this was a very, very bright idea at all, especially Honda. Uh, I mean, the last thing they wanted was somebody who was driving with a Cosworth engine to get to know about their engine, and they, I had a good relationship with Honda. I have to say, I, I really enjoyed working with them, and I, you know, they, they would confide in me quite a lot about stuff, and uh, you know, they just didn't want to do it. I couldn't see the logic in it because, from my point of view, Hans Harald Frenson, very good driver, but he was always far too analytical too much from the engineering side of things to jump into a car for the first time and start a race because, you know, it just wouldn't happen for him. It's not, he's not that type of driver. So what was to gain for anybody uh, other than putting a car on the grid? Absolutely zero. Unless Eddie had some deal in the back of his mind that he might have worked out for that 2000, that late 2002 settlement, because there has to be something going on. And, you know, we had various, fairly heated discussions i must admit myself with eddie to the extent that eddie went out the um the fire escape out of the motorhome and i was i was chasing him at (laughs) one point in time he disappeared out the fire escape motorhome and down the the uh, fire ladder in the outside you know back wall of the motorhome only to find my daughter down there who was with the arrows lot That was quite funny actually and saying that she should go back with him on the plane so i wouldn't shout out the room <laughs> i wouldn't be too <laughs> upset with him if my daughter was there so yeah funny funny set of circumstances to be honest and i was just relieved whenever it couldn't happen because i knew, i didn't see what was going to happen for anybody at all there was nobody going to get any big part in the back you know it wasn't a race that we were going to potentially win because we didn't have a car capable of that and it was just madness to be honest all-around madness
0: Let's get on with the rest of the weekend then. Montoya took pole for Williams, his sixth of the season and fifth in a row, which is, which is pretty remarkable when you consider how dominant Ferrari was. Montoya said, we thought Ferrari was too quick here. I was not expecting to get pole position. In fact, before qualifying, we were a little concerned about McLaren as well. For the race, I think Michelin has brought a more consistent tyre and I think we have a better chance than for a while. Ferrari had made a habit of turning those recent qualifying defeats into race wins, though, and it seemed pretty confident of being able to do that again. Ross Brawn said, if we can stay with Montoya, there is a good chance we can try and win through the pit stops. We would have preferred to be on pole, but that could have spoiled the recent tradition, which has seen us win the last three races without starting from the front. As we were firmly in the midst of a tyre war at this time, there was a lot of talk about the tyres, Bridgestone said the run of poles for Michelin and Williams was an unfortunate pattern, but it hoped that the pattern of Ferrari getting ahead on Sunday would continue. And Michelin's Pierre Dupasquier said the French firm had been investigating some interesting technical paths to try to work out why it couldn't translate its qualifying speed into results on Sunday. And Mark Montoya was the only non-Ferrari driver to take a pole position in 2002, and he ended up tying Schumacher with seven of them through the season. What was it about the Montoya Williams BMW Michelin combination that was so much more potent on Saturdays than Sundays?
2: Um, they had a they had a car that worked that tyre very hard, which worked very well over one lap. And th- that that tyre was a much better qualifying tyre than the Bridgestone. That old-fashioned Bridgestone concept I was talking of earlier really limited how soft. They could go on compounds because their tread ran quite a lot hotter than the Michelin one. The Michelin, with its radial construction and bendy sidewalls, it could have the tread absolutely planted to the surface with the rest of the tyre sort of bending around it, if you can imagine, which allowed it to run cool and the compounds to be softer. And I think that, and the BMW horsepower and Montoya monstering it all together, that was good enough for those seven poles, but the the car wasn't as good and it would abuse those tyres, you know, very quickly. Um, far more than the Ferrari with its tyres, and it's one thing doing it over a lap, but downforce will always win out over a race. And in the race, the Williams just wasn't in the same league. So, plus the the the, the, the Michelin's at this point were a, a, a much fussier tyre than the Bridgestone. You, you had to run through this graining phase, which they were much more sensitive to conditions. So that the Ferrari spec Bridgestone was a great, very consistent race tyre. But in qualifying, the Williams had more tyre grip and more horsepower, and that was enough for, for those poles.
1: Yeah, one of the things about the tyres um, that was quite interesting was that Bridgestone would, would control the, the compound on their tyre to like within 0.1 of a millimetre, and every circuit would be different. And they really relied a lot on that the fact that they could get enough heat into it for the race, but dissipate that heat so the tyre wouldn't get too hot, whereas the, the Michelin's were quite a lot heavier tyre. had quite a lot heavier tread on them so they would heat up very very well very very quickly because the tread would move that little bit so for that one lap it was very good but then they wouldn't get rid of the heat again so you know the 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 tire itself was the bridgestone tire was was really sort of manufactured to be a race tire for consistent lap times whereas the the michelin would be good for that one lap but then it wasn't it it was too much moving in the tire after that so Two different philosophies, completely. Um, Because whenever we got involved with the the, uh, testing the Michelin tyres at the end of 1999, going into 2000, you know, we the first thing we found was that the the Michelin tyres were almost two kilograms per tyre heavier, Um, and that was a a Michelin philosophy that you you needed the mass in the tyre to get the consistency and the temperature of it. So it's a whole different philosophy to be honest, just the way they worked. As Mark says, with the soft sidewall. And the, and the stiff belt tread, the two of them were working individually, and you just the, the sidewall was a carrier for this belt that had to sit on the ground. So it was very, very fussy tire as to how you ran it. Whereas the Bridgestone was a much more forgiving tire.
0: Michael Schumacher joined Montoya on the front row with Rubens Barrichello and Kimi Raikkonen on row two. Then Ralph Schumacher, David Coulthard, Button, and Trulli. Eddie Irvine took Jaguar's first top ten grid possess- position of the year with Nick Heidfeld Sauber completing the top 10. On race day, there was all kinds of drama before and just after the start. Barrichello's car failed to fire up on the grid, which was potentially significant for Schumacher's championship hopes. Then Felipe Massa managed one of the more blatant jump starts you'll ever see, while at the first corner, Olivier Panis and the sole Jordan of Takuma Sato came together. Panis carried on until lap 29, when he stopped with concerns over a vibration BAR couldn't trace, and he was quick to head over to the Jordan pit wall to complain about Sato. By this point, Sato was already out of the race as well, having bizarrely slid straight on at the final corner and into retirement a few laps before Panis. Gary, I couldn't see you in the TV shot of Panis and Eddie Jordan having their chat on the pit wall, so you might not have heard much of that complaint. But was, was Taku still struggling to find his feet in F1 halfway through his rookie season? Um...
1: Yeah, he was. Uh, one of the interesting things with Taku, obviously he was very quick, but he, he hated understeer. And we'd always start the weekend off and, you know, during practice, him his his, his uh, engineer at that time was James Key, who's now technical director at McLaren. Um, James was a young kid in the block, very, very intelligent young kid in the block, but a young kid in the block at that point. So he got led by his driver a little bit. And Taku would always complain about this understeer and James was clever enough to fix it. Um, so usually by, you know, by the time he got to qualifying or something like that, um, Taku would have got rid of his understeer and the next thing you know, he'd be in the gravel trap because the car would just be too, too nervous to drive. Um, and it was one of those sort of very difficult situations for James, you know, he, he wasn't confident enough to stand up against them. Um, so Ta- Taku would not listen, you know, he wouldn't listen that, you, you know, you need that little bit of understeer just to give you the confidence in the car where, what the car is going to do. If it's right on the knife edge, then it will bite you. It will bite you very quickly. And it took us to near the end of the season, to be honest, before we got Tiger to, to accept that um, that it was necessary to be like that. We took him to Silverstone for a test just before the Japanese Grand Prix, um, and we let him learn to drive. with was a bit of understeer. And we just said, no, we're not going to fix it. This is what we're, we want to be in the car. This is what you need for confidence. And when he went to Suzuka, it was the same, you know, was moaning about understeer, but we just didn't dial it all out of it for him and suddenly he, he got a result out of it. So, you know, earlier in the season, if he'd listened and, and drove a more benign car, he would have learned quicker and he would have, he would have got some better results, but, uh, he just didn't like it like that. He liked, liked it to be on the nose and the rear end moving around. And as I say, you can only do that for so long and then you end up in the gravel trap. So he learned from it, but he learned too slowly.
0: Up the front, the first stint of the race was actually great to watch, aided by Montoya's Williams holding the lead, but not really having the pace to stay there. After 20 laps, the top five cars, Montoya, Schumacher, Raikkonen, Ralph and Coulthard were covered by less than five seconds. And the highlight of this battle came when Schumacher attacked Montoya down the outside into the hairpin. Montoya obviously ran him wide. So Raikkonen got up the inside of Schumacher briefly on the exit of the hairpin, but then Schumacher swept back in front at the next corner. Afterwards, Coulthard told Schumacher he was enjoying watching the scrap from the back of that group. DC said, From where I was sitting, it looked like a great race, even when I was running around in fifth place. I thought, even if I finish fifth, I'm enjoying this because everyone is so close together and opportunities might come. That is what racing should be like, and I had a thoroughly enjoyable afternoon. Now, Mark, you had to cover some dull races in 2002. Even though this was mainly thanks to Montoya's lack of pace, was this one of the more enjoyable stints of a Grand Prix in that season, to have five cars so close in a lead battle? Yeah, it was. It was a little bit
2: different, even though you always got the sense that Schumacher just needed to get into clear air and would pull clear, and that what we were looking at wasn't really a battle. It was just a queue. It was formed by Montoya having (laughs) track position, but struggling with the graining of his tyres. But he had great racecraft, and he had a lot of grunt, so he was able to maintain position. And then every now and again, somebody in that queue would take a little nibble at someone else in it and to the casual observer it made it look like a really close, tight fight. But situations like this, there's always jeopardy. So something would have to give. The whole race couldn't be run like this. It was, If it was, Montoya would have to do a repeat of Gilles Villeneuve and 81 at Harama and be absolutely inch perfect the whole distance and the chances of doing that especially in a pit stop race where there was going to be little gaps opening up for all the people to express their pace, it, were virtually zero. So something was going to give. So it was, it was interesting, it was intriguing, but you knew this wasn't the real,
0: the real picture you were looking at. Now, During the first pit stop, Schumacher predictably, predictably moved into the lead quite comfortably, but there was more drama to come as he crossed the pit exit line, rejoining the track, earning a drive-through penalty. Schumacher said he was on the radio at the time and checking his mirrors rather than looking at the white line. He said it was one of the more difficult pit exits, but he had no complaints, adding, We are Formula One drivers and we should be able to drive without touching the line or going over it. Schumacher put the hammer down before serving his penalty, perhaps showing us one of those rare glimpses of just how fast Ferrari could go if it had to in 2002, and he quickly built an eight second lead before coming in and rejoining third behind Montoya and Räikkönen. He nearly did it again after serving his penalty, but he wasn't the only driver to commit that offence during this race. Massa did it when serving his drive-through for his jump start, which is just brilliant, but Ralph Schumacher and Coulthard both did it as well. But Gary, crossing the pit exit white line was still a pretty new thing to get penalised for in the early 2000s. Do you think... Drivers took a while to adapt to it, or was this just an extreme case because the pit exit at Manicourt was on the outside of a fast corner?
1: Um, yeah, it is a bit of an extreme case, to be honest. But, you know, I think racing drivers, what, 19 years on now are still struggling with white lines and track limits and pit entries and whatever. So, you know, it, it hasn't actually gone away completely to, at all. But then, yeah, it was a bit, a bit difficult to come to terms with it, but it was... You know, go out the pit lane at Magnacour, you've got the fast left-hand corner, which, you know, you're arriving flat out if you're on the track. So it could be definitely difficult to to negotiate another car if it went not cross that white line. And then you go into the vestibule corner, the fast right-hander from there. So leaving the pits, you want to use as much speed as possible. And you could basically leave the pits and go flat out um, through the first two corners without any real drama as far as car was concerned. But it did mean you would have to cross that white line. And so there was an advantage there. Um, It's just, as Michael says, you know, they are professionals. They should be able to recognize white lines um, because even if you're colorblind, the white line's a white line, isn't it? So it's one of those sort of things where they they needed to learn about it. And Michael was one of the just exceptional guys, you know, whenever the team set him a task from a pit stop strategy point of view or whatever, to achieve that, to, to be able to drag out the best out of it afterwards, you know, he could do that. He, he just was one of those guys in my book that come Sunday after one thing I always said about Michael Schumer, or was come Sunday afternoon at two o'clock when the race started, he drove the car he had to the best of his ability. And that was a typical example of, of just driving the wheels off it to overcome a mistake that was made. You know, it was something that he had to do. It was his job and he recognized his job and, and got on with it.
0: Now Montoya's race fell apart after the second stops as he and Ralph trudged home 40 seconds off the win by the end. Montoya said he was struggling with balance and lost more and more grip as the race went on. Williams's Sam Michael said, our tyre choice looks like a mistake and our performance in race trim is not good enough. During the second round of stops, Raikkonen stayed ahead of Schumacher, so with Montoya out of the picture, that was the battle for the lead and Raikkonen appeared to be doing an excellent job of keeping Schumacher at bay. Then a few laps from the end, Alan McNish's Toyota engine failed on the run to the Adelaide hairpin, dropping oil on the racing line. Raikkonen slid wide on it, and while Schumacher did too, he'd been just far enough back to not run over the oil quite as badly as Raikkonen did. That got him up the inside of Raikkonen, who he then hung out to dry on the exit of the hairpin, taking the lead and winning the race to seal a championship he thought he was going to have to wait for another day. Schumacher said those final laps when he was in the lead and waiting to win the championship were the worst I've had in my career. The outbreak I had was pretty heavy, and that's when I realized how much pressure I was under. However, after the finish, Ron Dennis was quick to point out that Schumacher overtook Raikkonen under yellow flags, as McNish's expired Toyota had then spun in the runoff area at the hairpin. Schumacher said he wasn't sure if there were yellow flags or oil flags out, and he had asked on the radio immediately if he had overtaken under yellow flags. But he also pointed out that Raikkonen had gone quite far off the circuit on the oil. So Mark, I'll come to you first on this. What did you think? Was this a pass under yellow flags? It should have been punished in some way. Well, Raikkonen was off the track. If the other
2: guy leaves the track, you can't pass under yellows. These these things weren't as precisely delineated then as now so just exactly where kimmy's wheels were in relation to the line defining the edge of the track I, I don't know then then it was just more the general principle rather than the millimeter measurement the guys run off and I said to slow drastically it's okay to to pass so yeah I, I, it was it was contentious but i don't think it was a slam dunk
1: yeah, it's, it's pretty difficult to draw the line there. As I say, it's, uh, you know, whenever you arrive, it is, if the car's on the track, basically, and you overtake it on the track under a yellow flag, then I think it's wrong. But if the car's off the track and you overtake it, then I think it's okay, because you don't know if the guy's going to be just stopping. He might, he, might have broken, he might be the one that's caused the yellow flag and he's broken down and he's pulling off the track. So you never know, otherwise all the cars would have had to be lined up behind Reich and sitting there waiting for him to, to take off again. So... It was uh, it's a very difficult decision but I think Ferrari were very good and, and I have to include Ross Brown in this were very good at at, at bringing um, um things to the table with the FIA that let them get away with some things that they might not have got away with if it, if it had been another team but on that on that day I think it was it was acceptable.
0: The incident was investigated but the stewards decided no action was necessary. And McLaren accepted the verdict, saying it would be inappropriate to take the matter any further, to detract from the outcome of the championship. But it did call for the rules around overtaking under yellow flags to be clarified. Raikkonen called this maybe the most disappointing race of my life, pointing out that there were only yellow flags, no oil flags. And he said by that point, he didn't really feel under pressure from Schumacher because he had the gap under control and he was taking it easy. In Raikkonen's authorised biography called The Unknown Kimi Raikkonen, he says Schumacher being gifted the chance to overtake him pissed me off for a long time. So, Mark, let's look at Kimi because this was his first season with McLaren. Despite not winning the race, how good was this drive to withstand that pressure from Schumacher in an inferior car? Oh, it was a great drive.
2: He did got in front because of Michael's pit lane exit area but he then withstood the pressure from a faster car um the McLaren was on a better tyre choice than the Williams it was a not, not a it was on a different compound of Michelin and it was kind of to its tyres anyway it was a bit of balanced car uh, uh, but it just didn't have anything like the BMW's grunts but yes Kimi was he's perfect in how he used that and he showed <clears throat> he showed he had no fear of the big occasion and that he was ready you know he's ready for the big time it was his first season in a big team and there's always, a question mark, you know, against the the guy that's looked very special um, in a in a smaller team as a rookie. But he does that translate? And I think this was when he sort of underlined and um, you know really very clearly that there there was no there was nothing to be worried about. He was absolutely ready to go wheel to wheel with Schumacher. It was no big deal to him, and he ran off the track because there were no oil flags um, for McNish's oil, and it wasn't his fault. Uh, so, Kimmy arrived on the scene first and able Michael to react to events and, and pounce. That's all that happened. But <clears throat> Kimmy's performance was faultless.
1: Yeah, the interesting thing for me is the fact that he, he was driving for the team, you know, McLaren run by Ron Dennis. And Ron Dennis was the one that complained about him being too young and inexperienced for Formula One the year before, um, you know, and then signs him up and, he, and he's there. I mean, Kimmy's a, an exceptional talent. Um, and I think, you know, he's, he's been. Unluck is the wrong word, but he's enjoyed his Formula One time dramatically. You know, very, very well. He should have had so many more better results, but they didn't happen for whatever the reasons were. But uh, it shows that Ron Dennis was good at recognizing young talent and signing him up for two thousand and two, but pretty bad at recognizing young talent and and uh, complaining about him whenever he was sober.
0: <laughs> Let's finish with Schumacher. Then we have to finish with Michael Schumacher because this was the day he made history. He'd matched Fangio's record of five titles, which had been a benchmark since Fangio won his final title in the 50s. Schumacher said, I've never been good at these moments to find appropriate words. It has just overcome me. I've been asked very often about the comparison. I have to apologize that I'm not considering it too much because I feel that what Fangio has done in his time is not comparable to what we do. The effort he had to put in at the time was probably quite a lot more just being a driver than these days where you have so many people around you, where you have a lot more teamwork than you had in the past. Therefore, I feel it's not appropriate to compare these things, at least from my point of view. I simply enjoy the achievement itself without trying to compare it to someone. Gary, you weren't in F1 in Fangio's time. I'm not going to try and make you sound older than you were, but you spent a long time, many decades working in the sport. Do you think that was a fair assessment from Schumacher to avoid the comparison of the eras?
1: Yeah, I think it is. To be honest, it's so different. You know, <clears throat> whenever you think in Fangio's drives that he had, and uh, the, his his priority, I suppose, during during his drives would have been about survival. You know, if you crashed one of those things, you you, you didn't walk away from it. That's the norm. Um, whereas Formula One's got safer and safer and safer, so the the limits become much much higher. So I don't think you can really relate it because the, the actual expertise required at each different sort of decade I suppose even is completely different. I have a big spreadsheet based on every driver that ever won a Grand Prix. And you know, I put in the pools and fastest laps and whatever. And you know, Fangio was still the guy at the top of it, to be honest, because of what he won in the period that he, he won it in. But that doesn't mean he's he is the best. Um but interestingly, you know, the Lewis Hamilton's Michael Schumacher's there's a bunch of them there, um, Nicky Laudo, Jackie Stewart, Alan Prost, all, They all come out in the same sort of little window um, for different reasons, but for, for, the, for the right reasons, I think, that they were very, very competitive drivers. But still, as the decades went passed, I think the biggest thing for me is the fact that you had to be so much more disciplined back in the old days because if you had a shunt, you didn't walk away.
0: And looking at the record, Mark, obviously today we have Lewis Hamilton and Michael Schumacher tied on seven championships, so the the benchmark has moved. But back in 2002, the closest anyone had got to Fangio's record before Schumacher came along was Alain Prost winning his fourth title in 1993, and the most anyone else had at that point was three championships. So before Schumacher and Ferrari went on this tear at the start of the 2000s, had there been a point over the years where you ever thought Fangio's record might be matched or broken? I guessed that it would someday, yes, um the records are there to be broken.
2: Um, Prost had gotten win within one of that record, as you say, but it was it obvious in ninety six when Michael went to Ferrari that it would be he would be the one to destroy all those records? No, it wasn't. It, at the time at that time, if he'd said he was joining Williams or later if he was joining McLaren. I would have said yes, he he could definitely challenge those records there, but Ferrari, that was a a very big project. So yeah, I suspected that record would be beaten someday, but not necessarily by Schumacher, who seemed to want to do something more meaningful than just climb into the best car and obliterate everyone. Um, He wanted to be part of the process of creating something that would allow him to do that, and he, he had some very... Talented and influential allies in, in, in doing that. Um, but it, no, it, it wasn't obvious. But I think he,
1: he could probably see at that point in time that the by creating that package around him and the team, the longevity of it would be a lot better And if he visited a, a winning team for a snapshot in, in time. You know, um, you can never get that longevity that you need to get as many championships. So going to McLaren or whatever might have been the right thing for one year, but it definitely wouldn't have been the, the right thing long term.
0: That's a nice little add-on to uh, an episode we did uh, last week in the feed where we talked about Schumacher's move to Ferrari for 96. And we tried to tried to remind ourselves of, of what the expectations might have been uh, with Karim Chanduk and Matt Beer. And now we've had Mark and Gary's insight into that as well. So if you haven't listened to episode two yet, you can go back and listen to it and then uh, bolt on the last couple of minutes of this as a, as a bonus chapter. But we'll leave the French Grand Prix of 2002 there, probably one of the more eventful weekends of that season. Thanks to Mark and Gary for their memories of being in the paddock at Manicor that weekend. And as I said to them off air during one of our ad breaks, I enjoy the fact they both have stories of people running away from them in hilarious fashion during that weekend. Remember to get in touch with us for your, with your questions for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. Email bringbackv10s at the-race.com or submit a question by leaving a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve one. And if you'd like to get early access to ad-free versions of our new episodes and get access to an exclusive monthly podcast with Gary, sign up to the Race Members Club, which you can find out more about over at the-race.com forward slash members club. Next time, we're heading all the way back to 1989 to the second ever race of our V10 era and the first win in F1 for a V10 engine, the San Marino Grand Prix. It's a race famous for a lucky escape for Gerhard Berger and the falling out that was the true start of the feud between Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost.